This week, we are covering a case that is close to home for us, as it happened right here in Tennessee. This is the story of an innocent girl who had her life taken from her by people she thought were her friends. This is also the story of a girl who seemed so innocent and sweet on the outside, but had a disturbing darkness lurking just beneath the surface, fueled by jealousy and hate. This is the story of Krista Pike and the murder of Colleen Schlemmer. strangers welcome back to another episode of beers with queers i'm jordy and i'm brad and thank you again for tuning in this week we're on episode four so if you've stuck around this long we just want to say thank you for your continued support thank you uh hopefully you guys are enjoying the episodes and if not please reach out to us and let us know what we could do better yeah we hope you guys are just enjoying the ride and we can't wait to bring you more episodes down the road so before we get started with today's case, this was actually originally supposed to be episode five, but then the more I was researching it, I actually found out that the anniversary of when it happened is actually coming up this week. And so I think this episode gets released on January 9th, and the crime happened on January 12th. And that is the murder of, it's the 28th anniversary of the murder of Colleen Schlemmer. And uh, this is actually kind of home for us because this happened right here in Tennessee, and I'm a West Virginia transplant. I've only been here about 10 years, but I think you've been, you were born and raised in Tennessee. Yeah, I'm, I'm a redneck from birth. So he's one of them corn fed boys, cornbread fed boys. Cornbread fed boys. (laughs) (laughs) Corn fed boys. (laughs) One of those corn fed boys. But, um, so yeah, this is a case that actually, you know, I heard about when I first moved here and stuff like that. And it's always kind of stuck with me. And you've probably heard that you might have heard this case before because it is pretty, it's featured on a lot of those like true crime shows like the Killer Women and Snapped and stuff like that. But uh, today you're going to hear us tell it. So without further ado, let's just jump right into it. So this is the story of the murder of Colleen Schlemmer. It is the 28th anniversary. So, oh, and before I get started, all the information presented here was actually from the book A Love to Die For by Patricia Springer. So let's just go ahead and set the scene. On January 12th, 1995, in Knoxville, Tennessee, 19-year-old Colleen Schlemmer made a phone call to her mother, Mae Martinez, who was back home in Orange Park, Florida. Colleen kept the call short, saying, Not much longer till I see you. I'm going to Blockbuster to pick up a movie, I Love You, Mom, before hanging up. Colleen sounded upbeat and happy. May knew this was probably because in just about one month's time, Colleen would be graduating from her job corpse program, something she had been working really hard on since making the trek up from Florida to Tennessee in September of 1994. But, unfortunately, that would be the last time May ever spoke to her daughter, and it was two days later after the final phone call that she received another call from Knoxville, one from Detective Randy York, who had the task of breaking the terrible news to her. Colleen had been found brutally murdered. Colleen's body was discovered dumped on the side of an embankment located in a dense forested area 
of Tyson Park, and it was clear from the moment police got there that she had been put through hell. She was nude from the waist up and completely covered in blood, her head so badly beaten that she was unrecognizable. Her skull was literally crushed to the point that brain matter was leaking out, her throat had been slashed, and she had dozens of cuts and gashes across her entire torso and back, as well as her arms and hands suggesting that she did not go down without a fight. But, most, most disturbing of all, a pentagram was carved into her chest, and it was clear that there was a lot of rage and anger behind her murder, and it did not take long for the police to narrow in on a suspect. So, Let's rewind a little bit and set the scene of how Colleen got to Knoxville. And so a lot of podcasts cover this case, too. And there's always more information on um, Krista Pike, who you'll quickly find out is the one responsible for this. But there's also not a lot of info on Colleen, actually. But the book, uh, A Love to Die For, actually did have a little segment of all the information they could dig up on Colleen. So let's tell you a little bit about her. Colleen Schlemmer lived in Orange Park, Florida with her mother, stepfather, and baby sister. She had been having a rough go at things since early in her life due to the fact that she suffered from a learning disability that made it really hard for her in school. It became so bad that she actually ended up dropping out in the ninth grade. She spent the next few years moving from dead-end job to dead-end job, but Colleen wanted more. She, she wasn't satisfied with working fast food or retail anymore, and she wanted to get her life back on track. So at first she considered going back to high school, but then she discovered the Job Corps program. Now, a lot of you, I don't know how familiar you are. Do you know what the Job Corps program is? I do not know what the Job Corps program is. I didn't either before this, and I started reading about it. And it, So the Job Corps program is a no-cost program ran by the U.S. government that helps disadvantaged youths between the ages of 16 and 24 get career training in an effort to help them get on the right path to a good future. It's a six-month program and resembles college in the fact that the students actually live in uh, dormitories on their campuses. But at the same time, it can also be a hotbed for criminal activity, according to one article I found. Um, so yeah, I didn't actually know that was a thing, but I think it was more of a thing in the 90s. I don't think there's many, if any, around these days. That's unfortunate, actually. Well, besides the hotbed for criminal activity part of it, the rest of it sounds pretty good. Well, and that's the thing when I was reading about this, like, this sounds like a really good program for people, you know, that might not be able to afford college or can't get away for that long. But um, we also find out that it was pretty poorly ran. And that's one of the reasons this uh, murder happened. But Colleen saw this as the perfect opportunity as it would allow her not only to get her GED, but also allow her to receive computer training that would help her find a good job. Originally, she was going to go to the job course program in Jacksonville, Florida, but they didn't have the computer program that Colleen wanted to do, so the next closest office offering it was in Knoxville, Tennessee. The program was located in a renovated motel, and the inner and outer walls were covered with vulgar graffiti and was home to lots of nefarious activity and characters. So we're not off to a good start here. Welcome to Tennessee. This was far from what Colleen had envisioned, and within three weeks, she was calling her mom, begging to come home. But it wasn't just because of the environment. Colleen had a legitimate reason to be afraid. She told her mom that three students had begun stalking her, harassing her, and even threatening her and even breaking into her room and stealing her things. When pressed why this might be happening, 
Colleen mentioned it was because one of them thought Colleen wanted a boyfriend, which she did not. Colleen even went to the program's counselor for help with the harassment, but nothing was ever done and she was ignored. Unfortunately, it also wasn't so simple to just quit and pack up and go home. Colleen had signed a contract when she joined the program and would have to finish out the course. So she is not like, I guess that's one of the disadvantages of it. It's not like college where you can just drop out and go home. She did sign a contract for it, so it was kind of like, you know, she's stuck. So Colleen stuck through it, and by January 1995, she was just two weeks from finishing the program and returning home to her family. With a degree in her hand and bright new prospects in her future, but of course, sadly, her future would be taken from her. Now, Colleen's body was discovered on the morning of January 13th, which was actually ended up being Friday the 13th, so remember that because that is going to come up a little bit later, by a UT University of Tennessee worker, and the police were quickly called to the gruesome scene. By 10 a.m., they had the entire area taped off, and police officers were trying to gather up everything that had blood on it, which was pretty much the entire area of the park. It had been so violent that gray matter was pulling down the hill where the body laid. At first, they were unable to determine the identity of the body due to her killer having taken her ID. So as the morning went on and police continued collecting evidence, of course, crowds of morbid and curious onlookers began to gather around the taped-off area. As word started spreading about a murdered co-ed, Officers were stationed all around the tape area to ensure no one got too curious and tried to slip past the tape, which, you know, if you listen to the Corpse of Manor Murders, we know that that's not uncommon for people to do because people can be assholes. One officer noticed a group of young girls approaching the area, and the group stopped some feet from the area except for one in particular, who walked directly up to the tape and the officer guarding it. The girl asked what was going on, and the officer explained that a body had actually been found. Normally, you'd expect someone to react with shock or maybe uh, actually even sadness. But this officer noticed that the girl seemed unfazed by the news and actually began pressing him for more details like, do you have a suspect? Do you have any clues? And the more she pressed him, the more amused and happy she seemed to get to the point she was openly giggling and dancing around the taped area trying to get in. I think you failed at throwing off yourself as a suspect at that point. You're about to learn she didn't even, oh, it gets worse. She didn't even try to hide it, and we'll get to that point here in a minute because she is the definition of crazy. Now, the officer thought this was extremely suspicious, but before he could question her, she and her friends ran off, leaving the officer asking, who the hell was that girl? Well, that girl was Krista Pike. Now, Krista was born in Durham, North Carolina, and she did have a rough go at things from the very beginning. She was born severely premature, and her parents divorced when she was about two. And her mom worked two jobs in order to provide for the family, but that left very little time to spend and bond with Krista. So Krista was left in the care of her grandmother, a verbally abusive alcoholic who regularly beat Krista and would often lock her in a closet for hours at a time, and again at the age of two. So, you know, she was damned from the start. Even when Krista's mother was around, she never took care of her, and people who visited the house often found Krista covered in dog poop. Eventually, after a while, Krista's mother ran off with one of her boyfriends, but this actually turned out to be a good thing because she left Krista in the care of her paternal grandmother, Delpha Pike. Now, Delpha was an angel. She deeply cared for Krista and made sure to show the poor girl as much love as she could give her, 
The two played, they cooked, and did everything together and were just absolutely inseparable. Krista deeply loved her grandmother and was finally happy and able to be a child. But that didn't last long because when Krista was about eight, her beloved grandmother passed away from cancer and Krista was deeply affected by her death. And this part's really sad because apparently on the day that her grandmother died, Krista actually asked to stay home from school to care for her grandmother, but they wouldn't let her. And so they do believe that she was riddled with guilt from that, which is understandable. And, you know, it's feel sorry for her now, not later. It's at this time people started noticing a change in Krista. She became angry, withdrawn, and began lashing out at everyone around her. It got so bad that the school counselor suggested therapy, but after one session, Krista never went back. Over the next few years, Krista bounced from living with her mom to her father When one parent couldn't handle her behavior anymore, they sent her to live with the other one. And then when that happened, they sent her with the other one. And so it was just this vicious cycle over and over again of Krista feeling the rejection of both of her parents, like, you know, some sort of sadistic loop. Now, eventually, Krista's father remarried and had another daughter. And at two years old, that daughter began showing signs of having been sexually abused. And so Krista was permanently sent back to live with her mother. Now... Do you think Krista's mom finally decided to act like a mother? No. No. She just decided to be her best friend instead, and together the two would get drunk and high together. Eventually, Krista got so wild that her mother forced her to go to the jobs course program to get her shit together, and that's the pot calling the kettle black. She was the cool mom. She's not like a regular mom. She's a cool mom, except she's also a piece of shit mom. It wasn't long after arriving at the Jobs Corps program in Knoxville that Krista met Tadaryl Ship, a 17-year-old from Memphis. She was immediately infatuated with him and grew extremely protective and paranoid that the other girls of the program were trying to steal him from her. Most of all, a beautiful older girl named Colleen Schlemmer. Now, one thing, one interesting fact about Tadaryl is that he was also a practicing Satanist. And he quickly got Krista involved as well. The two eventually began wearing matching pentagram necklaces. And remember that because that plays a very important role later on. Now, while the police were still trying to figure out not only who the Jane Doe was lying in the park, because they've still not identified her yet, but they're also trying to figure out who killed her. And while all of this was happening, Krista Pike sat in class talking with a friend, Stephanie Wilson. Stephanie would later say, Uh, Stephanie would later say that Krista got really excited and began smiling from ear to ear when she told her, I have something to show you. Krista pulled a napkin out of her pocket and leaned in close to Stephanie, and as she unwrapped it to reveal a small object in the center, Krista put the nap, uh, Stephanie asked what was, what it was, what the hell is that? And Krista said proudly, it's a piece of human skull. When Stephanie asked whose, Krista said, Colleen Schlemmer, with a smile still across her face. Now, as it turns out, Stephanie was not the only person that Krista had been flaunting a piece of skull to. So like you were saying earlier, she's not even trying to... She's not even trying. She's proud of it. Oh, she's very proud of it. She was not shy on spilling the disturbing details of her crimes to pretty much anyone who would listen. Another student at the program named Kim would later report a similar event the night that Colleen murdered the night that Colleen was murdered. Around 10 p.m., Krista knocked on Kim's door and told her that she had something to show her, but she had to promise not to tell anyone. Of course. You you know, you have to promise not to tell. Pinky swear. After letting her inside, Krista simply said, I just killed Colleen Schlemmer. 
She then proceeded to pull out the bone fragment and said, It's a piece of Colleen's skull, a souvenir, while laughing. Krista then proceeded to dance around the room while laughing and explaining in graphic detail everything she had done to Colleen while performing the same dance that she performed while Colleen lay dying. All the while, Kim stood frozen and horrified at what she was being told, and that made her remember a conversation that she actually had with Krista just the night before. Krista told her, I'm going to kill Colleen Schlemmer. When Kim asked why, Krista simply shrugged and said, because I feel like being mean today. Now, of course, Kim didn't believe that she was going to go through with it, uh, but seeing Krista dance around her room while grasping a piece of human skull made her terrified. And she also remembered one very important detail. Just earlier that night at around 8 p.m., she actually saw Krista leaving the campus with Colleen, along with Tadaro and another student named Shadala Peterson. Now, of course, all of this bragging on the part of Quick Krista quickly led to one of the students calling Detective York and telling him that Krista and Tadaro are behind the recent murder and that both are planning to leave town soon. Well, at least they done that. Sometimes people don't report things, which always blows my mind, but... Oh, yeah, it's a, um, the bystander effect, where it's like if all these people are standing around watching a crime happening, it's that feeling of, I don't want to get involved, but there's all these people, so someone else is going to call the cops. But then everyone thinks that, and so no one ends up calling the cops. Yeah, they're like, somebody else will call the cops because she's bragging to everybody, and I don't want to be that person because I don't want to get put on their radar. Mm-hmm. That. It just happens so in so many cases, it drives me crazy. So I'm glad they actually called the cops this time. And yeah, me too. Like, and of course, you know, that had to be scary as shit too, like talking to detectives and like, are they going to think I'm involved with it and stuff like that? But both Tadaro and Krista were quickly brought back in for, were brought in for questioning along with Shadala. The first thing that stood out to Detective York was how Krista was the only one who actually had run-ins with the police before. Both Tadaro and Shadala had clean records, and it left him wondering how in the hell they found themselves involved with such a brutal murder. Krista was the first to be interviewed, and was not shy at all about talking with Detective York. She agreed to tell him everything if she didn't have to name the other people involved in the crime, and York agreed. The girl was calling Schlemmer, Krista first told York finally giving them the identity of the slain girl. Krista went on to say that on the night of the murder, she asked Colleen if she wanted to go to a nearby blockbuster. After the two met up, she instead asked if Colleen wanted to go to Tyson Park with Tadaro and Shadala to smoke weed and talk things out, as she put it. Because, we mentioned this before, the two had a very chaotic relationship in the months leading up to Colleen's murder. Originally, the two started out as friends, before Krista became convinced that Colleen was attempting to steal to Daryl from her, which friends of Colleen's said that she most definitely was not. But it also seemed that actually Tadaro himself wasn't helping the situation very much, as he too seemed to have a strange hatred towards Colleen in the months leading up to the murder. Now one possible reason for this might be because Colleen was a self-proclaimed white witch. Now white witchcraft is different from, say, black magic or satanism as they believe in live and let live and that the whole of the action is the sum of its consequences so it's satanist against white magic pretty much or that's at least the way that Tadaro and krista saw it and honestly they probably just use it as an excuse to hate because they were jealous of her now according to the book again a love to die for 
White witches look down on Satanism and see it as evil, which is in direct opposition to Tadaro's Satanism and, of course, by extension, Christa's. But, now there's absolutely zero evidence that Colleen ever judged or treated Tadaro and Crystal, Krista any different despite their deferring beliefs. More than likely, it was actually the other way around, and it was them who treated Colleen differently based on her beliefs. And soon it began to spiral into outright hatred on Krista's part. Now, going back to the night of January 12th, Colleen was led deep into the woods surrounding Tyson Park by the trio of teens, only coming to a stop when Colleen finally confronted Krista about the real reason they brought her out there. Krista immediately began to get aggressive and started accusing Colleen of spreading lies about her and trying to steal to Daryl from her. When Colleen attempted to defend herself, Krista began to violently hit Colleen in the face before pushing her to the ground. And this is going to get a little rough, so trigger warning. Krista went on to say that she had never been so angry in her life and just kept kicking and hitting Colleen over and over again. At one point, Colleen attempted to run only for Tadaro to trip her, sending her back to the ground where Krista continued to beat on her. Krista ordered Tadaro to knock Colleen unconscious, and so he slammed her head into the concrete. But Colleen continued to fight, and she once again attempted to run, only for Krista and Tadaro to grab her legs and drag her into the woods. It was at this point, Krista pulled out a box cutter from her, from her jacket and sliced Colleen across the stomach. Now, Shadala up until this point had mainly just stood to the side and watched all of this happen. I mean, she didn't do shit to help Colleen. But upon seeing Krista slice Colleen, she immediately began to warn the others, saying, She's going to tell on you. You've got, you're going to go to prison. You have to do something, Krista. You can't just let her get up and go tell on you. While Krista contemplated for a moment on what to do, Colleen once again attempted to run, but she only made it a few feet before Krista threw a rock at her head and knocked her back down. Now, you'll see, like, Colleen did not lay down and die. She fought and fought and fought. And it's at this point that Colleen attempted to actually calmly talk to Krista, telling her that she could, they can end this now, just let her go, she'll walk back to Florida if she has to, and Krista will never have to see her again. Krista refused to listen to Colleen, and later told York that the more she talked, the angrier she became. Krista forced Colleen to remove her jacket and shirt and toss them into the woods. It was at this point, Krista pulled another weapon from her jacket. A fucking meat cleaver. They came prepared. A meat cleaver. She began to slice Colleen all over her body before finally slashing her across the throat, stating that should shut her up. But Colleen was still alive and attempting to escape. Tadaro held her down on the ground while he proceeded to cut off her bra with the box cutter before, and this is really disturbing, before he began to carve a pentagram into her chest while she was still alive. Krista proceeded to take the box cutter and carve another pentagram into Colleen's forehead. By this point, it had been almost an hour of nonstop torture for Colleen, and she was still alive. Krista began worried that nothing would kill her until Tadaro suggested using a piece of broken up asphalt that laid nearby, because according to him, the only way to kill a witch is to crush their skull. Now, as Colleen took the asphalt, Tadaro had the fucking audacity to look away because according to him, he'd seen enough. So, like, not, he hadn't seen enough when he actually held her down and carved a pentagram into her chest with a box cutter. 
it's at this point he's like, Ugh, I'm disgusted. I want to turn away. Like, fuck yeah, off. An hour's worth of torture is enough. Uh, I'm on overtime now. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. And so it's just, are you fucking serious, dude? Now, Krista proceeded to slam the asphalt onto calling Ted over and over until her head literally split in two. The last thing she did was lean down and ask Colleen, do you know who's doing this to you? And Colleen Schlemmer finally died. Krista began to dance around her victim while singing before reaching down and taking a piece of broken skull. And this is another really gruesome detail, but when the medical examiner actually brought Colleen's body in, she was wearing a gold chain around her neck. And they actually had, the attack was so gruesome and so violent, they actually had to dig for several minutes just to get it out. Now, here's another really fucked up detail. Tadaro and Krista actually believed that a person's soul could not rest until their body was whole. So, they took the piece of skull because they thought it would prevent Colleen from finding peace in the afterlife. And you want to talk about how fucking evil and disturbed you have to be. Like, if you genuinely believe that, you've done all this to this poor girl, and you don't even want her to be at rest in the afterlife if there is one. And, oof. Does it say if they were high when this was going on? No, they weren't. See, that's... I mean, it's not an excuse, but, you know, I think it's worse that they're sober and just decided to do this, which was definitely premeditated if you bring a meat cleaver along with you. They and, they knew what they were going to do that night. And just the night before telling another roommate, I'm going to kill this specific girl. No, the, you'll see they'll try to make it their defense where they're like, oh, this wasn't pre-planned. But I'm like, you know, that's kind of hard to do when you bring a fucking meat cleaver. Yeah, I just normally carry a meat cleaver along because you never know when you're going to have to carve some meat. Now, Krista showed absolutely no remorse for her actions and finished her statement to Detective York by telling her all the places she disposed of the evidence, such as calling student ID along with her into Daryl's clothes. She also mentioned how she gave the meat cleaver back to the student she borrowed it from. So it wasn't even her meat cleaver. She found a student who had it, which I don't know why they had a meat cleaver, but she borrowed it. And then could you imagine they're like, here you go. I'm done with it. Have it back. And then the cops come back to you and they're like, uh, your friend used that to horrifically murder a girl. And it's just... Before leaving, York noted the pentagram necklace hanging around Krista's neck. Now, next up to be interviewed was to Daryl, and like Krista, he was very open about his involvement with the murder, speaking calmly and clearly as he described how he had been into Satanism since he was about 11 years old, and how he had actually seen Colleen's death as a sacrifice to Satan, and that his nickname was actually Baby Satan. York again noted the matching pentagram around his neck, such as Krista, and I want to know who would say baby Satan with a straight face to someone. I'm pretty sure that was, he gave himself a nickname. It's not cool if you have to give yourself the nickname. And baby Satan is not a cool nickname anyway. Yeah, so just shows you how big of a loser this guy was. Last but not least was Shadala who also described in detail Krista and Tadaro's torture and murder of Colleen and how she did instruct them to keep her quiet, although she maintained that she had no part in the actual killing, which 
I mean, technically, I guess you didn't get your hands dirty, but at the same time, you honestly didn't really do shit to help either. So, Plus, I'm pretty sure you went along knowing what was going to go down that night. More than, more than likely, if your friend brings a meat cleaver, a meat cleaver with them, it's uh, kind of hard not to speculate something shady's about to go down. And that's the detail I always keep coming back to. It's like the box cutter you can hide, but she had a whole cleaver with her. And also, she's just telling random people that what she's going to do. So if you're bringing somebody along and you're just telling random people what you're about to do, you're definitely telling them what you're about to do. Call the cops when something happens like this. Don't be an evil person. You know, no matter what, nobody deserves this. No, this is just horrific. And it does get worse. 36 hours after Colleen's murder, all three were officially arrested for the murder. Now, York and another agent decided to grab a video camera and take Krista back to the scene of the crime in order for her to show them exactly what happened. And, well, Krista gave a performance that would rival Meryl Streep because York noted how bubbly and cheery Krista was as she gleefully reenacted the entire crime, playing both the part of herself to Daryl and Colleen. Throwing herself on the ground and screaming as Colleen or jumping around and stabbing and kicking at the ground when she played herself. She had a smile on her face the whole time. It was around this time that Colleen's mother, May, actually arrived in Knoxville and was greeted by Detective York, who told her about the murder and the suspects in custody. Now, after pos positively identifying her daughter's body, which, of course, can you imagine that? Just the brutality of this crime, and then they ha she still has to go identify it. After she did that, May drove over to the Jobs Corps building because she wanted to collect her daughter's things. And this is very infuriating and heartbreaking, too. When May asked to see her daughter's room, she was told that Colleen's room had been ransacked by the other students and all of her things were stolen. The only thing remaining being three pairs of socks, which May took back to Florida with her. Krista and Tadar... So, again, and also she was horrified because, you know, Colleen had told her about how rough the program was like but you know i'm sure may thought maybe she was over exaggerating a little bit homesick stuff like that nothing like that serious but when she actually got there she was horrified because it literally looked like a crack house there was spray paint vulgar graffiti people just running amok there was no supervision and these were all like you know 16 17 year old kids and they're just doing what they want and so I couldn't even imagine just like this is what my child was living in. Like I'd want to come home too. Now, Krista and Tadera were held without bail while Shadala was able to post bail and released until her trial. Krista seemed to love being in jail and felt like she was a celebrity as news of her crime spread throughout the other inmates. She definitely had been looking for attention her whole life. I mean... She did. And I mean, that started when she was young because she was ignored most of most of her life and then the time the one person that did actually show her attention died and she felt really guilty over it but i think that transitioned into severe psychosis yeah i mean the whole thing with she thinks people's gonna steal her boyfriend away and everything it all comes down to that she doesn't want to be like left alone anymore she doesn't want to be you know i mean yes this is trauma from her past and everything but and you can't 
you can't forgive her for that, but you can see how this all came about. Oh, yeah. I mean, the seeds were planted, like, from birth. I mean, but, of course, a lot of people went through stuff like that, and they don't commit horrific acts of murder like this. Um, So she is a crazy piece of shit. Now, Krista frequently and happily reenacted her crime scene for the other inmates, just like she did for Detective York. So during lunch and stuff, she would again play the parts of all the people involved, throwing herself on the ground, stabbing and kicking at the air. She was enjoying herself. Of course, as news of the murder spread throughout town and that the killers identified as Satanists, it sent the whole small community into a frenzy, many demanding that the jobs court program be exiled from Knoxville. And again, you have to remember this was 1995, so this was right in the middle of the Satanic Panic movement. And it actually was only um, two years after the West Memphis Three case. You, you know that case, don't you? Yes. So the three kids that were convicted because they were wrongfully convicted because they were supposed Satanists. But this was just two years after that, and so tensions were still high. And it's in the Bible Belt. First off. It, yeah, it's it's Tennessee, so we're right in the middle of the Bible Belt. So as soon as you mention the word Satanist, even in passing, people lose their absolute shit. So tensions were already high in a lot of religious communities, and a lot of them thought that Satanists were going to murder them and their families. Rumors also began to spread throughout the town that the whole job court program was overrun with teens who identified as Satanists. And so security was beefed up enormously around the school, and businesses and teachers began to spread awareness on the warning signs of occult activity. People even began writing to Congress and referring to the murder as the Jobs Corps murder. So, of course, just three months after Colleen's murder, the Jobs Corps Program Center was closed permanently. I guess we answered our own question in the beginning why it's not around anymore. Oh, yeah, the one in Knoxville was like, I've not heard of this. Is this still around? And then I was like looking it up. I was like, no. They got rid of that immediately, which, I mean, I guess... For good reasons, but it sounded good on paper, at least, and I think it could have been a good program had it been more, probably more funding, just to have people around to actually watch the kids. Now, the first order of business in the prosecution of Colleen's murders was to determine whether or not Daryl would be tried as an adult, because he was still 17 at the time. Because if he was tried as an adult, he would be eligible for the death penalty. Although the prosecution argued that the extreme nature of the crime warranted him being tried as an adult, The judge ruled he would continue to be tried as a juvenile and thus could not get the death penalty. But that was not the same case for Krista, who prosecutors were determined to give her the death penalty. And she was tried for, both were tried for first degree murder. Shadala, on the other hand, had no actual physical evidence linking her to the murder. And so the first degree murder charges were dropped. And instead, she was charged with accessory after the fact, which I guess makes sense, whatever, but accessory during the fact during the fact on march 25th 1996 krista began her trial and in attendance was colleen's mother may as well as krista's own mother carissa now part of krista's defense was presenting her as the sweet and squeaky voiced little girl she often portrayed on the outside to fool people and i don't think i mentioned that before so and i'll post pictures of course but she literally looked she was like five feet tall she looked like she was 12 And she always wore, like, hair and buns, and she had this really high-pitched voice. So if you were just looking at her, she would look like this sweet, innocent, like, little girl that, like, you would not 
pick as the one to be the ringleader of this horrific murder. And that's exactly what the defense was trying to play on the jury's feelings. Like, come on, how could this sweet little thing do such a horrific murder? So they dressed her really nice and childlike and attempted to play up the jury's disbelief that a girl who looked so innocent was capable of such a savage murder. But that was kind of hard to do considering Krista signed a confession plus the video of her reenacting the crime plus eyewitness testimony from all the people she bragged to plus Shadala testified against her too. So, um, you know, that's kind of hard to balance there. Yeah. If you're proud of it and telling everybody about it, that doesn't go away. No, (laughs) but that was kind of, like I said, but that was kind of hard to do. And, The medical examiner also made sure to point out that none of the wounds Colleen had suffered before the blows to her head were sufficient enough to kill her, and that Colleen was conscious and felt everything all the way up until the final blow to her head. So again, they were like, no, bitch, you're not going to get away with sweet and innocent. We're going to tell you, like, it's rough, but we're going to tell you exactly that poor girl felt everything you did to her and you tortured her literally tortured her to death now that was when the prosecutors also called for Colleen's skull to be brought out for the jury to see and this was both a complete shock to the jury and Colleen's mother because she was completely unaware that the cremated remains given to her by the police were incomplete and for some reason nobody felt the need to tell her or mention to her that her daughter's skull was missing, or the fact that it was going to be brought out into the courtroom. The badly cracked skull was shown to the jury in courtroom, as well as the bone fragment that Krista had kept for herself, which was placed into the skull like a missing piece puzzle piece, and sealed Krista's fate for good. Now, Krista's defense did try to argue that Krista was mentally ill, and that she was diagnosed with severe borderline personality disorder not long after the murder, and that she had been suffering a mental break at the time of the murder. It was also brought up that Krista would often visit her grandfather's slaughterhouse growing up and seemed to find joy in watching the animals being butchered, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners know is a very early sign found in a lot of serial killers. It was actually one doctor even brought up that Krista herself was a would-be serial killer who just so happened to be caught in her first murder, and 100% she would have kept killing if she didn't get caught, which get herself caught by bragging to everybody that would listen. Three days after her trial, the jury deliberated for just two and a half hours before coming back with a verdict. Can you guess what it is? I would hope guilty. Krista Pike was found guilty of first-degree murder, and she would be sentenced to death and become the youngest woman on death row. Now, here's another infuriating piece of evidence. Carissa, Krista's mother, actually confronted May, Colleen's mother, and begged her to make the prosecutor change their mind about Krista's death sentence. Like, really, bitch, you want to be a mother now? And start acting like you're the, you know, the holy, like you actually give a shit about your daughter. But, of course, this comes after the fact that Krista's aunt took the stand to describe Krista's home life and recalled how at one time when Krista was three, her grandmother actually called Carissa to let her know that Krista was having a seizure And in response, Carissa said, she'll be fine, before hanging up and going out to a bar. Mom of the year. Yeah, real mother of the year here. So May, of course, told her, no, I can't do that, and I think it's a lot for you to ask of me. So, I mean, this poor woman, she has a lot of strength, because I would just want to 
slap the shit out of someone if they said that to me. Now, after her sentence was read, Krista began to sob and asked the judge to allow her to hug her mom one last time. She was putting on that show again, but the judge said no, and as the bailiff pulled her out of a side door to a holding cell, several people noted as soon as the door shut, they heard Krista say, oh shit, in a monotone and emotionless voice. So that, as soon as she thought she was out of earshot, that facade dropped, and she was like, oh shit, I'm actually uh, in a shitload of trouble. So, you think after all this, even after looking at Colleen's poor, heartbroken mother in court, maybe Krista would feel at least some remorse? No. It wasn't long after her sentencing that Krista began writing letters to to, to Daryl. These letters were actually turned over to the prosecutor's office, and here's just an excerpt from one of them, which Krista wrote, You see what I get for trying to be nice to that hoe. I went ahead and bashed her brains out so she'd die quickly and not bleed to death and suffer, and they fucking fry me. Ain't that some shit? She went on to say, I have ten months left to live. I'd spend every moment with you if I could. Also, tell your lawyer if he wants me to testify for you, I will. And then signed it from his little devil. Like she's still after, like no dick is that good for you to be this fucking crazy over. I think the crazy came first. The crazy definitely came first, and she's still at it. I'm like, you have to know the police read these letters, honey. Well, just three months after being found guilty of first-degree murder, Krista went back in court again for a charge of conspiracy to commit murder. So that's like the premeditated part. And guess what the prosecutor entered into evidence? Krista's letters to to Daryl, which came as a surprise to everyone but especially Krista's defense attorney, who actually involuntarily said, oh shit, out loud as the letters were brought up. That's not a good sign, folks. Not a good sign at all. It's a good sign in this. Oh yeah, no, like I can just imagine even her face where she's like, I'm going to just put on this act again and you know, this is lesser charge so I might get off with this. And then they're like, actually, surprise, let's just bring out these letters where you admitted to it again. And so she's like... Oh, shit. Of course, Krista was found guilty of the charge, too, and sentenced to an additional 25 years in prison. Now, Shadala Peterson took a plea agreement and received a six-year suspended sentence, which she would spend on probation at home in Cleveland, Tennessee. And a lot of people, especially Colleen's mother and stepfather, did find this a miscarriage of justice. But at the same time, they understood because it was Shadala's testimony that really put Krista and to Daryl away. And so should she have gotten a more harsher sentence? Probably. But the prosecutor would say, like, this was the best we could do with what we had. And so, you know, you would think, like, the real punishment for this person would to have to relive this murder in your dreams every night. Oh, yeah. But something tells me that if she was okay with it happening in the first place... That's not the case. So I would say she did get off really easy, and she doesn't care. I hope you do care. I hope you're out there and you think about it every night. Yeah, I hope hope you have changed for the better, or you've at least tried to better yourself. So wherever you are out there, do better. Finally, it was to Daryl's turn. Now, his defense, of course, painted Chris as the sole aggressor, and that Daryl had no idea what was going to happen that night, They also claim since none of the wounds he gave Colleen himself were enough to cause her death, he shouldn't be charged with first-degree murder. 
But of course, the prosecutor played his taped confession, where he calmly talked about his torture of Colleen and how he saw her murder as a sacrifice and how he decided he told them that, you know, the idea to just carve a pentagram into her chest just came to me. So I, I mean, did it. As baby Satan, it would definitely come to you. Yeah, you know, they refer to him, you know, baby Satan, can you explain this to me? However, to Daryl's defense, next attempted to shift the blame to Shadala and that it was actually her that slashed Colleen all over her body. But now, of course, they brought Shadala in again, and she's like, actually, first of all, that's not what happened. I just stood around and watched and did nothing. Now, she also Shadala also brought up an interesting thing that Tadero had said to her not long after the murder. Now, remember how I told you Colleen's body was discovered on January 13th, which just so happened to be a Friday the 13th. Tadero stated, It's a full moon outside and my father's birthday, Satan's birthday. Tadero, and so they think that was also part of the premeditated. They intentionally chose to kill her that night because it was... Satan's birthday, I guess. Satan's born on a Friday the 13th, even though, you know, that changes every year. But Tadera was found guilty and sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. He is still serving his sentence. He appealed once and it got denied, but he is still serving his sentence in jail. So some good news. And now let's circle back to Krista Pike. She is currently serving her sentence in the Tennessee Prison for Women in Nashville, Tennessee, she continues to grant interviews and has been featured on countless true crime shows and news stations. She is still awaiting her execution and has launched appeal after appeal for a new trial, which have all been denied. Now on October 21st, do you think uh, all that time to reflect in prison and stuff would change her? No, 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 no. From everything you've told me, she's probably just as proud of it as she ever was. A hundred percent. And she's still just as uh, murderous and bloodthirsty as she was because on October 21st, 2001, Krista actually attacked fellow inmate Patricia Jones and attempted to strangle her to death with a shoelace with the help of inmate Natasha Cornette. Now, you may actually know Natasha Cornette as she was one of the six teenagers convicted in the Lilylid murders. And we actually may cover that case soon, but to give you a short summary of it, Natasha, along with five of her friends, carjacked a family at a rest stop before taking them to a deserted ditch where they shot all of them execution style. Vidar and Delphina Lalid, along with their six-year-old daughter Tabitha, were killed, although their two-year-old son Peter did survive his injuries. And for that, she was found guilty of attempted murder. But wait, we're not done. Because in March 2012, Krista was caught attempting to make a prison break. She enlisted the help of a man she had been having a writing correspondence with and a corrections officer at the prison. They, the plan involved tracing a prison key for Krista to make a mold of in order to escape. However, the plan was quickly found out, and the man Krista had been writing with was found guilty and sentenced to seven years, while the correctional officer was simply let go. So he's like, you just, you scamp, you just get out of here. You dirty dog, you, you get out of here, you scamp. Control your hormones. Now, on October 27, 2020, the Tennessee Attorney General requested the Supreme Court finally set a date for Chris's execution. But, of course, COVID derailed those plans. And currently, the court is deciding whether to set a date or commute Chris's sentence to life in prison. Should she finally be executed, she will actually be the first woman executed by the state of Tennessee in 200 years. Now, for a very sad piece of information... 
May is unable to get back the piece of her daughter's skull that Krista took with her that day until the day Krista is potentially executed. And until then, it sits in an evidence locker to this day awaiting Locke Colleen's family for the day Krista Pike dies. And that is the story of Krista Pike and the murder of Colleen Schlemmer. And this was just such a brutal and senseless case. And I do hope Colleen's family did find at least some bit of peace in the years since. But it was just so insane. I just wish all criminals that done this was as stupid, stupid. as this girl was. Or, or overly proud. I don't know what to say, but you know... Uh, most of the times, no matter what, there's very few times when the killers actually do admit to their crimes, which she did admit to her crimes and everything. So there's at least that. And not just admit, glow and boast about it. That's the thing. She was like telling people like she had won some sort of prize. Like, oh, look at this. I did this and this. And it's like, how disturbed do you have to be? And also, that's her first taste of blood. That's when she turned into oh, yeah. a rabid dog. So if she had not messed up or been so proud, I can't say messed up because she literally just told everybody that would listen what happened, but it wouldn't have been the last. No, if, if she, for some astronomical reason, she wasn't caught or she didn't gloat and she wasn't caught, she would have continued. And so thankfully she was... She's locked up forever, at least. Hopefully she's executed soon, but you never know. At least she is locked away in prison. But that was uh, a brutal one, and I've actually been to Tyson Park before, and I actually visited there before I even knew about the case, and so I was like, Tyson Park, that sounds familiar. And then thinking back, it was like, it's so eerie to think you've been in a location where something so brutal happened, and it's just, it really is chilling, so... Thank you guys for tuning in once again. If you like us, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you're listening. It helps us out so much, and we just love hearing from you guys. And Any feedback, any case suggestions, or if you just want to reach out and talk to us, you can do that on Instagram at beerswithqueerspod, that's P-O-D, pod, or on Facebook at beerswithqueers, a true crime podcast. And, of course, there we post photos and evidence. So, like, if you want to put faces to the names in all our stories, you can go check us out there. Uh, see you guys next week for another episode. And until then, stay dangerous out there. See you soon. See y'all.